0: Hi everyone, Duncan Fletcher here, back for another session of the Athletic Development Summon Podcast Series. Again, I'm with my colleague Stephanie Thorburn. Stephanie, how are you doing today?
1: Doing well. Good afternoon, everyone. Excited for another welcome podcast to the Development. today with our podcast um, series. Very, I'm very,
0: Fletcher. very pleased to introduce guest. our next guest. The excitement After is barely in making fact it out of the Congo War very alive, we're experiencing South have. Africa right Eve after Batola. apartheid. Eve's our guest to today and his family and fled their us. homeland and moved Steve to Texas. Guests, huh? yes. Growing up in Texas, he fell in love with the sport of football and went on to play at a collegiate level. His last really since its inception. Development led to an exciting career in collegiate job athletics in the of, and, and the national football league, I, I just love Where his space. focus so, has always uh, been to empower to be, athletes to so reach again, we're their full have holistic really potential. He recently really wrote a book about his experiences, as an so, immigrant and living an American now, life with on, African I, I know that you have some. We have a great conversation today about building a rapport with elite and professional athletes. And plus, and I get a first-hand lesson on how, how, how not to make assumptions successful. and how those and assumptions can impact your ability to make a meaningful connection. We also so talked about how, talk how his perspective has shaped his approach you to athlete development. How I hope you enjoy our conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, E.J. Vitoba.
2: Yeah, a big part of my story has been just coming from whenever I was a student-athlete at Oklahoma State, really, really being involved within the athletic department. But also, you know, getting a taste in the NCAA, served on national national SAC, whenever legislative autonomy was a conversation. So I got to have conversations with student athletes really across the country, across different divisions and conferences, which was incredible for me. Um, now, whenever I started working at the University of Notre Dame and being kind of more on the admin side, I started noticing that for whatever reason, there's, there tended to be a lack of understanding between student athletes and the staff, right? And I always said to myself, like, hey, as I grow older in this profession, I never want to lose the touch. I never want to lose the ability to relate to whatever student athlete. Um, and I always said, like, hey, I just want to stay current. I always want to stay current, want to be in the know of what's happening in the world so that I know what you know the, the, the athletes are going through. So to answer your actual question, once I transitioned to the Miami Dolphins and spent five years there, I knew that It was going to be a slow process to build that trust all over again. But the person that hired me, Caleb Thornhill, I remember he just said, if you don't have the trust, bro, you ain't got nothing. Like in this role, it is all about the trust. So that slow process, right? And I always remember things that I learned from specifically this book that I reread every year by Dale Carnegie called How to Win Friends and Influence People. And, um, you know, in this book, he just talks about the importance one of knowing people's names. And that was one of the main things that I always try to get right, right? Like, not just knowing the names, but also pronouncing the names right, right? So you have, uh, you know, all these athletes that come from all over the world. Well, really, uh, technically, like when I say all over the world, within the Miami Dolphins, we had an international players program. So I le- legitimately mean all over the world. And I have to know how to pronounce people's names, whether it's something as simple as Mike or uh, DeBricashaw or- uh,
1: Bricashaw uh, Ferguson.
2: Yeah, you have Keyshawn, Yeah. So all these different types of names. So I always just took an importance of understanding a uh, in the book, Dale Carnegie says uh, the sweetest sound that anybody can hear in any language is their own name. Right. So even whenever we started this conversation, right, you pronounce my name, Eves, the S is silent. I don't like correcting people. I just kind of let it ride. But I have to say that um, just because, you know, I know some other people care about the names. Right. I blew it
0: right out of the gate. Unbelievable.
2: <laughs> it's Unbelievable. all good but it helps drive the point. It helps drive the point home. So the importance of knowing people's names, been, but number two, just asking a whole bunch of questions. Um, you know, The reality is there's nothing that people love talking about more than themselves. And, and, and people could talk about themselves all day. I used to tell folks all the time, hey, you want to really impress a girl whenever you go out on a date? And I, this advice that I used to give to my little brother, hey, go to the date, And then just ask questions. Anytime there's a lull in the conversation, just ask questions. She will talk 80 percent of the time. You'll talk 20 percent of the time. And she'll walk away saying, wow, that guy was such a great conversationalist. And you barely even said anything. Right. But, you know, that's how it goes. You ask a whole bunch of really, really good questions. And uh, for me, it was really um, inviting people. So within the Miami Dolphins, uh, whenever away games would take place, I kind of made it a point that I wanted to stay back. And connect with the players that weren't traveling which typically was the practice squad players as well as the guys who were injured and i always wanted to say hey come over to my house let's watch the game together or oh, let's go to this restaurant let's go to top golf let's go bowling always inviting people to places because oftentimes in the pros they're away from their families they're away from their friends they're in this brand new environment especially if you if you're picking up a free agent so um inviting people was so uh, huge for me and ensuring that they felt like they were a part of a community at least um, you know, throughout the entire process. And then once you have that, once you have that, that trust, boom, they'll ride for you. They'll ride for you. <laughs> ride for you.
0: Oh, that's, and that's a great point. And I kind of love how you laid that out. And, and again, I, you know, I, I relied on my French Canadian background there. I just came at you with the French Canadian pronunciation in the name. So whoops. Uh, oh, but that being said, I mean, you made some great points there. And I guess, um, you know, you came to the Dolphins after a pretty significant incident um, that made you know, arguably national, if not international news uh, with uh, Martin and Incognito. But I think, as you said, that like you came in after that, the the pieces had kind of already been picked up. But I mean, that's still probably a pretty challenging environment to go into. Yeah. How did you enter into that environment? And, and how did you deal with, you know, potentially sort of a, a locker room that may have been dealing with some fractured trust, as you pointed out?
2: Yeah. um, I would say that one of the biggest pieces um, of that entire case was, hey, how can we be proactive and ensure that something like this does not happen again? Because it did become a national conversation, especially around the topic of bullying, right? Bullying, mental health, um, substance abuse, like all these things came into place. So- once I got to Miami, we already knew that because of the destination that we were in, it's an easy place for people to get in trouble right? with anything. We're in South Florida and you're 22 years old. People stay and do all kinds of things. So specifically, um, when I got there, uh, I kind of took it upon myself uh, based on an assignment that I was given to come up with a crisis management plan. And the first, pers- the first question that I had to ask was, who all needs to be involved um, in this conversation? All right. So you're talking about our our director or our VP of communications. You're talking about LEOs, law enforcement officers in the local environment. We have our director of team security that is there. Of course, our general manager and our head coach. And um, not to give away too much of (laughs) how the crisis management plan is done over there, but um, we had significant time that we spent over the phone talking with uh, two teams in particular. You had the Dallas Cowboys and we had the Kansas City Chiefs. And those teams had recently faced uh, some crises that, that hit the news. And we were trying to figure out how they were able to handle that right, in the after effect, in the aftermath. So we put these things in place beforehand, just in a matter of being more proactive. But hearing the stories from the director of team security and from people within the uh, Miami community, right, Broward County, as well as Dade County, uh, you realize that there are so many missing conversations, uh, with professional athletes, right. And especially in the area, in the topic of bullying, uh, in the topic of locker room banter, what's appropriate, what's inappropriate because mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff is said in the locker room. So being able to, Hey, it's still a locker room. It's still a sacred place, but how can we bring this conversation back to the point where it doesn't get out of control, out of hand. And part of that was having actual, um, uh, I guess, how would you call it? We had uh, league mandated sessions that we had to have with rookies as well as with uh, veteran athletes just to make sure that the conversations were uh, that it was understood across the board.
1: I just wanted to kind of follow up on on your relationship um, conversation as well as this crisis management plan. You had the um, the great fortune, I would say, to have played the sport of football Um at the collegiate level and work within college athletics and then transition into professional sports. And there's some individuals that are currently in this space or hope to be in the space of athlete development that have never stepped foot on a field um, or are female um, and therefore are not allowed in the locker room. The locker room is obviously a place where relationships are fostered and also a place where you can see if there is bullying or harassment. So what advice kind of two part question do you have for those individuals that never played the sport whether based on gender or just wasn't their sport how do you foster that relationship because you have the football credibility that those individuals won't have yeah. and if you're not allowed in the locker room how are you going to be aware of what's really going on in that space
2: yeah no i mean not only is it just from a hey i'm not allowed in the locker room standpoint but it's also like it's there's a huge difference too within uh, Professional sports and collegiate athletics, for the simple fact that it's almost like built in and understood in college that we we care about the the total athlete. It's about their their well being here. And then once you get to the pros, I legit heard an executive one say, "I could give a f if this guy goes and he gets his 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 degree in the off season. Like this is not what we care about. Is he producing on the field, right? So I'm over here like, okay, how the heck do I navigate this conversation? Because I'm not trying to compromise any of my values, any of my beliefs. So anywhere that I am allowed, okay, like I'm talking about the the weight room um, in the off season, right? So guys who were coming in and they were doing uh, extra workouts whenever it wasn't really mandated, I would go in there and I would do the workouts with them. We'd be out there running. Oh, you're going running? We're going out there. We're running together. There was something about like doing physical activity together that almost forged the relationships um, in, in in a way that. Most other activities don't. Um, and I think specifically, whenever you're able to go to, up to people proactively and tell them, hey, I heard about this program that is marketing up in New York. I know that you had once told me that you're interested in this space. You should apply for this. If you want my help, I'll go and I'll help. So, doing as many things for other people as possible and just saying, I don't want anything in return, right? So, like the best word of mouth, or sorry, the best marketing. Uh, That I'd ever received within the facilities that I had been involved with was just word of mouth from doing something for another athlete. Because once they do that, they'll tell their teammate before they know it, before you know it, hey, the entire locker room just kind of knows, okay, that person's good. They're good. Now, on the other side of that is how do you convince the higher ups that this thing really matters? And how can I get buy in within the organization that, hey, maybe I do need increased access? to some of these athletes. And a lot of times that can be tricky because what we do, especially whenever you're in an area that is non-revenue generating, it's really hard to explain the numbers, right? So much of it is relationship-based. So how can I go and actually quantify? I can't say, hey, because I had this conversation with Johnny, he was able to not be distracted on Saturday. And as a result, he made that game-winning play. No, that, there's no you know, cause and effect that you can actually tie that back to. So I had to think, okay, how can I quantify as many possible things um, as I can, right? So every single year, what we would do is we create, like this wasn't mandatory at all. We would create a, uh, an annual report where I was able to go in there and kind of track the conversations throughout the year, right? I had different categories that I would put buckets, uh, uh, that I would bucket these different conversations with. So at the end of the year, I'm talking to the general manager. I'm talking to the executive VP. I can say, hey, I had 423 crucial conversations that we engaged in that revolved around these three things, right? they revolved around these six things over here. This person was able to get help from a mental health standpoint. Now, a lot of the information is disclosed, so I'm not giving everything away, right? Hey, 11% of the roster continue their education in the offseason. Why does this actually matter? Well, according to the NFLPA, players with with degrees make 20 to 30% more money, and they have careers that last about 50%, 50% longer. So I'm using numbers in every situation that I can. Why? Because these people... Think and talk in numbers. You know, one out of every four person on the roster has completed an externship, a job shadow or an NFL boot camp during the offseason. I had to bring these things up. Right. Why? Because a more well-rounded person is a more confident person and a more confident person in turn is a better football player, swimmer, track athlete, baseball player. So using numbers to kind of drive these points home, Uh, We're honestly a huge point, not just in the relationship building, but to gain credibility and to gain even more access and buy in from the organization.
1: And I, I really appreciate what you shared. It actually goes back to knowing someone's name. And so for those individuals that are trying to break into the industry, taking the time to know someone's name, to show that you're interested in them. So you talked about the marketing, finding out what they're interested in, and then they're able to take a step back and say, oh. They actually do know me. They do know what I'm interested in, helps foster that relationship. And then on the business side, when the ownership sees that you're able to bring statistics and numbers, they see the value and in turn give you more access. So again, all about relationships. And I think that's important because when you have the relationships, you have the access. When you have the access, you get the information to hopefully mitigate any issues.
2: And and, and could I add on to that, like That same person that I remember that said, hey, I don't give a crap what this player does in the offseason. Once the team owner saw that what we were doing was valuable... That's when everything changed within the organization. Everybody wanted to be involved with what player engagement was doing, right? Because we had this thing, what was called the, the Dolphins Business Combine. And it was essentially where players would go up to New York City. They would look at all the different array of businesses that the team owner, Stephen Ross, was involved in. And they got to do job shadows. They got to pick the brains of, honestly, some of the most powerful powerful people in business. And that entire thing happened because, we had four players that just happened to be in New York City at the same time. And because we had the relationship, he texts me and he says, Hey, I'm in New York. You know what, anything that I should do? You like know, what should I check out? And I'm like, Well, our team owner's in New York. Let's talk let me let, let me hit up the team owner's assistant and see if he can go by the offices. So that led to four players going and checking out the offices over the span of two days. And then because the owner and His friends were so happy and glad that they were up there. They took him on a yacht. They went and got, you know, wine and dine. Like all this stuff was happening. And in fact, whenever he was leaving to go to come back to Florida, um, he was so worried that he was going to miss his flight. He was like, Hey, I got to get back. We're on a boat right now. Like we got to go so I can make it to the airport. And the owner goes, Nah, it's cool. Like we'll just take the helicopter. Like we'll make sure that you get there. And they drop him off literally right in front of the terminal, like right in front of the portal that he was supposed to be at, caught his flight, and he was all right. So he gets that incredible experience. And whenever they told us about it, Caleb and I, we went into the lab. That's what we used to call it, which was really just his office. It was the lab. And we start just, all right, let's really brainstorm about how we can turn this into a thing. And that's how the Dolphins Business Combine was born, right? You have four players. The next year was 16 players. A year after that, it was 24 players. And uh, it's still going.
0: That's, that's fantastic. And I actually remember reading about the, the Dolphins Combine, and that's phenomenal. And anytime you can do that and get a ride on a helicopter to the airport, get dropped off right there. That's how you want to roll, right?
2: It's tough to be, man, definitely.
0: <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting as you're talking about that, and I, I love, love kind of how you, you, you teed it up and you know, you know, being aware and, and building that trust and, and being available in the locker room. But like, there's kind of that double edged sword. And I was wondering if you could kind of talk to that because one of the roles of an athlete development specialist, you kind of got to be the eyes and ears and you're looking for, you're looking for issues if, if, so that you can kind of, like you said, be proactive and, and get ahead of them. How do you manage or how did you manage that, that challenge of I'm a trusted entity? I can't divulge too much, but hey, I know this guy may need help or I know
2: there's an issue here.
0: How did you handle that and, and, and still remain effective and trusted by both the players? And like I said,
2: even management? Yeah. So I, I'll answer this question with a story. Um, and this player wouldn't mind me sharing the story because he's talked about it uh, publicly. But I'm, I'm still not going to say his name. Just you could probably Google and find out. But he was a linebacker, University of Michigan. He comes down to the Miami Dolphins. He's a rookie. And he asked me to go into the office. Hey, can I, can you, can I go into your office, man? I just got to talk to you. I'm like, yeah, man, of course. So we go in, close the door. And he says, hey, there's only one other person that knows about this. It's me. Uh, it's my fiance. She knows this, but I'm thinking about quitting football. I'm like You're thinking about quitting. Okay, so why is that? So he talks about, hey, the only reason why I'm here is because everybody else has put this pressure on me for the last two years. I really haven't loved the game, but I was team captain, so all these other people have expectations of me. But God, this thing is making me miserable. Don't like being here whatsoever. So we come up with a plan about like, hey, here's a timeline, right? Here's a timetable. After this date, if you still don't like it, we can go and we can have a conversation um, with the with the head coach about how we can navigate this space. Now, in the back of my head. The whole time I'm telling them this, I'm like, "Yo, our GM has to know because this affects the roster. This affects the salary cap, and I have to make sure that, like, you know, the proper communication methods are in place." So I told him straight up, "Hey, at some point, we got to make sure that we tell the GM if you do decide not to do this, um, in all transparency. Like, I want to make sure that we're good over here, but we also got to make sure that the team is good." And he completely understood that. Um, that transparency. Uh, was so key and it was so critical because it's so important for them to know that one, I ain't no snitch, okay? So like, I'm talking to you, hey, this is a trusted conversation, I'm not gonna tell this to anybody else. But number two, I just want you to know, if I do tell somebody else, you're aware, right? Like, and we're gonna come up with a way that we can tell that person together, right? So that way it's not just me doing all the talking. So long story short, we have like a six week break in the summer, he comes back right before training camp starts, and he said, the entire time while I was on this trip, I was dreading coming back. I think that's the end of my career. Like, I, I, I don't want to do this. I'm like, OK, cool. I get it. Let's go and talk to the head coach. It was Adam Gates at the time. So we go up in the office together. We sit down. We go over to the general manager together. We sit down and we said, OK, we're going to put you as a retired player. That way, there's still availability because this guy had a lot of size, He had a lot of size and speed. So they still didn't really want him to go. But they just said, in case you decide to come back, this door will be open. But this is what we have to do right now within the roster and and, and what the CBA allows us to do. So we said, okay, let's go about it that way. So, yeah, to answer your question, it's, hey, that trust has to be there to know, like, hey, this is a safe space where you can talk to me. But also within the organization, um, I had to make sure that they know, hey, if I don't have the trust of the players, nothing that I do is effective. So there's a lot of information that is confidential that I'm just, quite frankly, not going to be able to tell you. But anything that is pertinent it affects the team at large, we're always going to figure out a strategy to make sure that, uh, that you're protected.
1: Following up on that question from a trust perspective, um, now switching to the collegiate side, after working with student athletes on campus, who would you recommend um, in terms of other professionals that the athletes um, or the coaches should reach out to if, if they're concerned or aware of something that's going on? Yeah be a good
2: point of contact on campus. Honestly, the first person I always tell the athletes to talk to is who they have the best relationship. With. Like who is it? Because you just never know, right? It could be a professor, right? It could be, um, th- it could be their coach or it could be the way they don't even want to talk to their coach because they think it's going to affect their play or whatever. Right. If, if it's one of the other administrators, like you just never know. So I always say, who do you have the closest relationships with now after that? Um, Honestly, whenever I started working at Notre Dame, this was back in 2014, and I was not a big believer in uh, in psychology. I wasn't a big believer in just the whole mental wellness of this whole thing until I actually went and sat down and spoke to a clinician. And uh, by the end of it, I was like, oh, wow, this is real. You know, like not only... Was I able to get some stuff, up, stuff off my chest, but I was also equipped with ways that I can better handle this. So I always recommend people to go and speak with uh, a mental health professional who can at least help them process some of the thoughts and some of the emotions. Uh, just two weeks ago is something that, you know, a guy, again, was considering uh, quitting football. There's so many people that want to quit football, that don't feel like they can. Like, it, it, it's so crazy the amount of pressure that is put on these uh, on these young men especially whenever they first transition into the pros, because a lot of teams actually do it on purpose. They want to put a bunch of pressure on them to see who can withstand what. So I always tell the guys, hey, what I don't want is for you to make a decision because of how you feel in May 2022. And then three years later, you completely regret that decision. So give yourself the best chance, right? Go talk to the team psychologist who is there to help you. It is not going to report any of this back to the team. Make sure that you are taking advantage of every single one of the resources. If it's not the team psychologist, I'll help you find somebody else outside of the team, but you have to give yourself a chance. And if after that, you still don't feel like, Hey, this is something that you want to continue doing or you need additional help. All right. Now we can, we can pivot. We can find another route and call an audible, but, um, yeah, the person that you're the closest to, and then let's find a professional that is actually trained.
0: I think that's maybe a, a great segue into kind of talking a little bit about your your personal history and how you kind of came uh, to have these the, the perspective that you have and the experiences that or the experiences that sort of helped build you to who you are in terms of who you are today and the work that you've done now as an athlete yeah. development specialist. And I know you wrote a book about it, and I would love to kind of maybe have a talk a little bit about your experience. Coming over to the U.S. and how that's maybe framed up uh, a lot of the 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 skills and the tools
2: that you bring to the table in order to be effective in building relationships with, yeah. with major professional athletes. No, absolutely. Like so, yeah. As you mentioned, I wrote my book, uh, "Immigrant American Living an American Life with African Perspectives," and in the book, I, I share the story about me, you know, being born in the Democratic Republic of Congo, moving to South Africa because of a war that had broken out. We actually had to crawl on our elbows and knees while bullets were flying over our heads um, to make it out of the country. And you know, by the grace of God, we made it to South Africa. And in South Africa, it was post apartheid. So horrible experience over there, right? White folks didn't like us because we were black. Black folks didn't like us because we weren't South African, right? So just a terrible experience. Probably lived there for about eight months before we moved to the great country of Texas, which is, which is what I like to call it arrogantly. Uh, <laughs> so you move to Texas and I fall, fall in love with football. And in falling in love with football, I knew nothing about intercollegiate athletics, right? My whole experience was, hey, you better make sure that you get good grades. And in Africa, I don't know how many Africans y'all know, but in African homes, they'll tell you, you have four career options. You could be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, or a disgrace to the family. And that's it, right? So I didn't become any of those other three. I'm the disgrace to the family, right? I always call myself the great disgrace. The rest of my siblings are, are, are in those fields. But um, yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing because I thought that I could just go to college, get enrolled, try out for the football team and, you know, start playing. I thought that's how the whole process worked. I didn't even know you could get a scholarship to, to play intercollegiate sports. So, you know, went to Oklahoma State. And while I was there, I was fortunate to eventually earn a scholarship uh, after I walked on with, uh, with head coach Mike Gundy. But so much of my experience has to do with understanding uh, cultural competency. Right, So we come from Congo, South Africa to the US, and I'm living in the inner city whenever I'm in Irving, Texas. And then from the inner city, I moved to the suburbs where I'm like the only black dude like, in the entire town, it felt like. And I'm like, okay, so you know, how do I relate to these people? And when I say relate to it is how do I speak their language and make sure that they can understand what I'm trying to say? I wasn't fluent in English for the first two years that I was there. So the only way I knew how to express myself was to fight whenever somebody was picking on me right? Until you, know, you learn how to speak the language and you can defend yourself with words. But you know, I'm listening to, you know, to all these white people talking about Seinfeld and all this stuff. I'm like, I don't watch Seinfeld. I have no idea how to relate to what you're doing. But uh, you know, as you become friends, as you learn and, and you start picking up these shows, it becomes like an organic, genuine conversations that you, start to, that you start to have. And that experience actually allowed me to really, really relate to people from all different parts of the country whenever I was at Oklahoma State to where, you know, whether you're rich, poor, black, white, you know, wherever you come from, all right, like I know how to relate to you. I, I can at least speak your language and I know how to make it to where I can at least understand some of your culture, right? Learning the culture. So that's why it was such a, it was almost like a culture shock whenever I went to Notre Dame because being there was a whole different experience from what I was accustomed to. But I just had to rely on those same skills. Hey, learn to speak their language, learn the culture, and help them understand you uh, as well. And honestly, that has been something that has really, really served me well. Um, And most importantly, just like understanding always, hey, how do I get over myself? Like I'm not the guy that has all the answers. I'm going to make sure that, uh, you know, I ask all the answers or ask all the questions, I should say, because I'll tell you, whenever I first started working in professional sports, I was gun ho. I'm like, hey, I know how to solve this. I can fix this. We can do it this way, do it that way. And everybody's like, shut up. You have no idea what you're talking about. So, uh, you know, learning just how to forget your ego and support the leaders within the organization, help them keep the vision, help them keep some perspectives and make sure that uh, um, I understand myself, right? Taking a whole bunch of different assessments, the DISC assessment, I'm talking about the Enneagram plan, like all these things, understanding myself to my core better than anybody else knows me. And then uh, understanding how I work best with others, uh, really, I would say, allowed me to, to thrive in a role like this one.
1: So two questions. One is, as I'm thinking about your international background and sport um, in the United States has most certainly become very international. You talked about the dolphins having that group. Um, I'm sure that they were able to connect with you uh, because they saw you as someone that has probably experienced some of the things that they're going through. And many of our athlete development specialists are working with an international population Any uh, tips or suggestions to help with that transition with those athletes? Yeah, and maybe shed some more light about the group within the Dolphins. Maybe that could be um, something other entities could um, you know mimic.
2: Yeah, I would say number one is share your story Uh, more than anything. Any chance that you get to just be vulnerable and to talk about the hardships that you went through, there's something about that that just connects you with others. So any opportunity that I got, I would talk about. Yo, I don't have it figured out. In fact. This week right here sucks. Like I've had a really tough week, um, and 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 you'll be surprised one by how they try to encourage you, and that builds a bond in the way that that you all connect. It's like it's my job to encourage you and to help you become a better person, and here you are pouring into me. So there's something there about just the vulnerability of allowing yourself to be open. And um, sorry, the, the second piece to your question, you were talking about that group, right? That international.
1: Players. Yeah, just you know, we have we we have global partnerships. So there are individuals that are part of this group um, from Australia and the UK that are working with athletes from all over the world. So this international group that you had with the Dolphins, can you kind of share a little about that? Maybe it's something that other groups could replicate to help with that international population transition and acclimate better.
2: Yeah. I think there's one thing to address the group as a whole, right? Like There's definitely some good takeaways, some good tidbits whenever you have your, your sessions with them. And then it's a whole nother thing whenever you can get to small groups and to one-on-ones. I think that's where the impact really happens. So one of the things that we implemented was actually a pilot program uh, my last year with the Miami Dolphins was called the Breakfast Club. So the breakfast club was every Friday. Friday was a slower day. And while the active players were out there doing the walkthroughs and whatnot, you had everybody else that was either doing treatment, that was um, uh, not really involved in the playbook for that week. Um, that, that, That plays a toll. That takes a real toll on these guys whenever they live, eat, sleep, drink football, and you're telling them like, hey, right now you're not good enough to actually see the field. So during this breakfast club was on Friday mornings, whenever walkthroughs were happening, we would make sure that we were with this group. Uh, We'd be in the players lounge and we'd be in a circle. We would have our team clinician as a part of that conversation. And more than anything, we're talking about like, hey, what habits are you putting in place? We're talking about goal setting. How are you getting through the week? Can you help each other? That peer-to-peer help um, was probably the best way that we found for people to learn. Like They have to hear from other people in the locker room. And all we were doing was creating a space where we could facilitate those conversations. And, uh, you know, the hired professionals, team clinician, for example, was able to chime in and give some tips as well, right? So we talked about visualization. Whenever you leave the house, like what, I I just remember one of our guys, uh, Montre Hardage, would always talk about, he created the sign right outside of his door. Every time he would leave, he would tap it twice. And then uh, he would walk out, just reminding himself to be great. So even to this day, whenever I talk to him, I call him Montre two times because he always tapped it twice. I'm like, hey, two times. You good? So, you know, just little things like that created and forged a bunch within that group. Um, but it was incredible how much they shared uh, in that place where they, they felt like it was a safe space in an area, in an environment that they were familiar with. Right. Mm-hmm. Talking about it being in the players lounge, um, that that breakfast club was probably one of the things that I missed the most. You know, we, we, we really got to keep it real within that. And it was, it was raw. Uh, it was unfiltered. And, uh, you know, people, people were, were really open.
0: When you reflect back now on your experiences working, you know, at the collegiate level, at the pro level, and, you know, talking to this particular group of athlete development specialists, what are some of the key takeaways that you really want, you know, based on your experiences, to have people really understand, like, hey, this is how you can be effective. You know, this is a, a pitfall that you should avoid. If you were to try and kind of distill that down, what is that for you?
2: The biggest thing is always this you're in the people business or you're out of business. And I really don't care which area, which sector you may work in. Like you're in the people business or you are out of business. And that looks a lot of different ways depending on who you're talking to. You know, I talked about being able to translate what you're doing into numbers, which is great. But also, if I'm talking to the athletes, right? Like, That buy-in is so key from them because they go and they report to everybody else. I'm talking about whenever they're having the conversation with the general manager, if they're having the conversations with their coach, they'll go and they'll say, here's what Eve did for me, or here's how, I I don't like that guy at all. (laughs) Like, Eve sucks and here's why, right? so understanding people um, more than anything. And I think that one of the things that player development professionals specifically can do a lot better is understanding um, the relationships with those athletes. Um, I don't know what it is. I can't put my finger on this per se, but anytime I'm on a college campus, it always seems like there is such a bridge that needs to be connected uh, between some of the admins who, hey, if we're we're keeping it real, like, the reason why we're all here is because of the student athletes. So you know that relevancy, that that relatable relatability, like it always has to stay there. And um, the last thing that I would say too is, and I think this really relates to quantifying it, but you can't improve anything that you can't measure. So I was huge on getting surveys, surveys, surveys. Like I'm trying to get as much feedback on the programs that we were running. I'm getting feedback on the speakers that we would bring in. Uh, I want to know as much information as possible so that we can either enhance this thing, build this out even more. And whenever I'm vouching for increased funding, a bigger budget, I can go and I can back it up based on the findings from this survey and uh, and, and some of those numbers um, that I touched on earlier.
0: I absolutely love what you just said. And I I love what you just said. Uh, I can't reiterate that enough. I mean, the importance of metrics, the fact that you were doing this back in, you know, 2014, kind of ahead of the curve, the importance of metrics, that's absolutely critical to really get, like you said, the buy-in from your leadership so that they are continue to support the work that you're doing. And it also allows you to kind of develop your own heat maps. Hey, this is where I need to be more effective. This yeah. is where we, I need to develop better interventions. So I think that's a phenomenal point that probably can't be
2: hammered home. Uh, home and and I, can't, I can't take credit for that. This, this, uh, I always say the best boss that I ever had was Mike Herity. Uh, Mike Harity was a senior associate athletic director at the University of Notre Dame, now deputy AD at uh, Army West Point. And I mean, one of the most brilliant people that I've ever met, right? Extremely enterprising as an individual. But he would always say, it is rare for somebody to become an athletic director going through this path of student athlete development. So he was always thinking about like, hey, I really care about this. This is always going to be a part of what I do. But how is it that we can include Other things that make more sense for the decision makers to say, okay, this is this is where we can increase money to do this, and this is how uh, we can almost carve out a career path to where, okay, it's not just student athlete development, but it's also uh, sports performance. It's all you know, all these other things that have to do with the comprehensive athlete experience. And um, you know, he's honestly uh, one of the best mentors that I've ever had in this field.
0: And out of curiosity, you know, one of the things I think is interesting about the space of you know player engagement, athlete development is that we find ourselves as kind of this hub. You know, the idea is that you know, we're interfacing with the athletes and there's going to be different things that we're going to need to help connect them with. What was your experience in terms of working with, like you've already kind of talked about, you know, obviously ownership, leadership, uh, or sort of general management. You've talked about, um, I think you've talked about like the, the, the psychological services you're trying to get access to. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about your experience in working with some of the things that may be outside of the norm, like whether it's doctors, psychological services, how can player engagement pro- professionals be more effective in, in interacting with those folks and helping athletes understand the value that those people
2: can bring to the table for them? Yeah, uh, I would say one of the biggest things is one, one to make sure that I always had all the information, uh, because the last thing that a player would want to do is have to talk to 30 different people to get an answer. And I always wanted to make sure, hey, let's sit down so that I can actually help you do your job better. So if you're talking about doctors talking about dental or you're talking about somebody over in the ticketing office even. Like, hey, let's sit down, let's have this conversation so that um you know I can make your job easier. I can alleviate some of this process. Um one of the biggest careers advice that I ever got whenever I first got into this space was make sure that you make your boss's job easier. So go ahead and alleviate some of their pressure. So I'm gonna go in, I wanna be a key holder of information so that athletes can almost view me as a one stop shop. You know, I, ha- I have all this info, but um, I would say even more than that, it's, hey, just so you know, every single time that we have these conversations, it's almost like you're collecting points, right? You're just getting little buy-ins, little buy-ins. Oh, you want me to, okay, yeah, let me talk to the ticket guy. I'll make sure that I can get your family seated over here, do this. And you're just doing this, these little things to hook them up so that whenever the off season comes around, then I can say, hey, I'm going to need some of that back. I'm not doing this because I want something from you, but I'm doing this so that we can uh, help you become better, right? Hey, I did all these things. Oh, remember that time that you asked me about the ticket? Look, I really need you to go back and, uh, and, and take this one class at the University of Florida. They have it. They're offering it online. Just, just do this one thing. It's for your own good. And for most people, they'll be just like, Yeah, I'm not doing that, you know? But uh, you know what? Eve did hook me up throughout the year. So, you know, you're kind of using that as a way to create, you know, some leverage um, but I definitely did that a couple of times and, uh, uh, players were always very appreciative of that, but, uh, understanding who the key stakeholders are within the actual organization, having conversations across the board saying who all needs to be involved with this particular topic, because the reality of it is a lot of these people within these departments, like interdepartmental individuals, they legitimately want, um, to, to help the athlete, Right. So you can say like hey if you can be a part of this career assessment this career program that we're doing like how much better is that for you right in the work that you do and people go and they'll tell those stories about that one time that um, whenever the parents came in to uh, you know help them learn as much about the student athlete experience well the nutritionist was really involved with that and they helped not only the the athlete get better n- nourished but their parent was able to take some of this information back to their community and say, okay, maybe we need to cut back on the deep frying or whatever it is, right? So um, anytime that we would come up with any type of program, and one of the first questions I would ask was who needs to be involved in this project? That's fantastic. And
0: then I guess one of the questions I want to ask is where do you think the field's going now?
2: <laughs> where is it going? Uh, it's, it's almost to a point to where it's, uh, it doesn't make sense not to have uh, that individual within the space. And I think right now, you're starting to see it to where there's at least one person there, but it needs to be built out to where it's a full fledged team, uh, that is involved with this. And at, at least people from other departments having kind of their hand in this thing, but it's way too important not to, especially, um, uh, the more that we learn about, uh, Whether it's mental health, whether it's financial literacy, whether it's leveraging your identity in order to create branding opportunities, when you talk about NFTs, like whatever it is, college with NIL, like all these things, um, ultimately all come down to the relationships that are had with uh, with the athletes. So, uh, I mean, it's too crucial. It is too crucial of uh, of a position to be ignored and not to be invested into. So, um, I actually, I, I think the future is bright. I love the direction that the comprehensive athlete development space is going and I'm excited to see how it turns out.
0: Well, uh, that includes Stephanie and I for sure. Cause I think, uh, it's, uh, it really is kind of continuing to, to move towards the center and the core in our opinion of the service structure that's needed within a, within an athlete environment. Uh, and to kind of bring it back to your book, I mean, I'd love to kind of get your, you know, that is not a, um, that's not an easy project. What prompted you to write the book, and and, and how's it gone for you in terms of um, now that you're on the other side of having completed it?
2: Yeah, you know, a friend of mine randomly texted me one night and said, "Hey, my wife and I were randomly talking and said that you're one of the best storytellers that we know." And I was like, "This is such a random text," but I remember screenshotting it, and uh, I just I don't know. There was something about that that really meant a lot to me. It's something that I practice, is storytelling. So I always kept it. And then whenever the pandemic hit and quarantine was happening, and everybody was just sitting around, I was like, "Hey, this would be a perfect time." To kind of write this book that I'd been thinking about. And I didn't necessarily know what I wanted the book to be about until one day I was speaking. A lady comes up to me after I spoke and she said, I would like to hear more about your journey, like your life story. Like that's something that you you kind of breezed over, but you didn't really touch on um, you know, what it was like for you and navigating the space with, you know, coming to the United States and at home felt like Africa, but then outside of the front door, it felt like America, right? And navigating that world. So I was like, man, I never really talk about that. I, just, I, I don't talk about that ever. So once I actually wrote the book, gosh, the entire process of writing took about four months. Uh, what I was doing was I was waking up at five in the morning and writing until 10 a.m. Um, every single day except for Sundays. So I would just do that every day. So even whenever I had a writer's block, some of the advice that I got was just put something on paper. Like you can go back yeah. and edit it later. But the toughest part is to make sure that it is written out. The editing will take place. So I just did that like religiously for four months and then two and a half more months of editing took place after that. And the book was finally released. Um, uh, so yeah, it was, a uh, you know, I'm, I'm definitely proud of it. Did not expect it to, to be, um, as successful as it was, honestly, like it was, uh, on the bestsellers list, I think it was number 23 and, um, new releases list. And then eventually, um, got some pretty good speaking opportunities to where I'm speaking to immigration and, uh, refugee, um, uh, organizations. So it's been, a, it's been incredible.
0: And, and, and I guess the last question in that same vein, is that has it reframed your perspective on your experiences by going through that process of sort of putting your story down? And, and is there a lesson there that you think is relevant to professional athletes or even elite
2: amateur athletes coming through the NCAA? Writing this, the process of writing this was so therapeutic. I had so many memories of what I remembered, you know, the war, Bullets. You're talking about my sister almost dying because somebody thought that she was somebody that she wasn't. Um, coming to the United States, being bullied, uh, all the jokes that people had, and asking my siblings about their perspective on it. And they remembered it completely well, not completely different because it was still the same story, but getting their perspective of it, I was just like, wow, I never would have thought. And you know what? You know what's so crazy? I never even thought to ask my parents what it was like for them whenever they thought that all their kids were going to be dead. Like I sat down with them. Um, what was really cool is I was actually in Congo. I went back to Kinshasa. I was in Africa, and we sat down, and uh, they were telling us about our family history. Like there were so many things that I didn't know. Like my my father's my father's father, right? So my grandfather was actually outcasted from his land, sent out to the east side of Congo, and while he was over there, um, it was still under built, uh, Belgian rule, right? It was still a Belgian colony. So my dad was actually born into slavery, right? And, um, you know, all these Belgian owners. And shortly after we ended up getting our independence, but it wasn't a real independence. And I'm just like, yo, this is so fascinating, but this is my story. I never knew any of this. So I think one of the biggest lessons there is to actually take the time to one, talk to your elders, like speak with your elders, know who you are. Right. Um, And you'll be surprised by, you know, how much confidence that gives you as a person, whenever you get a total story of yourself as the individual, Uh, but also to the importance of reflecting. Uh, that's where I talk about it being so therapeutic, because when I actually took the time to stop and reflect, it led to me getting new information. And when I applied that new information, it led to new experiences. And with that new experience, I was able to reflect on that. And it's almost like a cycle. And I think that's how transformational change happens, right? You reflect on it, get new information, apply it, reflect on that, get new information, apply it, reflect on that. And honestly, it's, it's made, um, I would say, life just a lot more uh, worthwhile. That's fantastic perspective for sure.
0: Stephanie, any last questions from you?
1: I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your story, your perspective, uh, your experiences. I think it's all very helpful for um, the individuals in this space as they continue to grow and and take um, the expression I use is nuggets of information to then apply it to their particular practice and hopefully provide the right services for their athletes.
0: And I'll echo that. Thank you again on behalf of uh, PADS and our global partners for taking the time to chat with us today. I think this has been fantastic, educational, great perspective. Uh, for our listeners at home, uh, make sure you check out Immigrant American, Living an American Life with African Perspectives. That's Eve Batoba. Make sure you check that book out. And again, greatly appreciate
2: the time and energy uh, that you brought to this conversation today. Thanks a ton, Eve. Stephanie, Duncan, Pads, thank y'all so much. Uh, I was excited to be on here, so definitely appreciate y'all. Thank
0: you. Thank you very much.